Hey, grab a seat. You're just in time for the conversation at the Organized Chaos Cafe. Leadership, transformation, and whatever goes. Leadership in Politics. So our next guest was elected in 2019 as a Conservative Member of Parliament for Calgary Centre and currently the Shadow Minister for Natural Resources and Canadian Northern Economic Development Agency. He's also served as the Deputy Shadow Minister for National Revenue and previously he's worked as a financial professional for 20 years in many industries including oil and gas and startups. Uh, I myself am also worked with him in the management consulting space for four years, and I'd like to welcome the Honorable Greg McLean to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Ben. So, how how have things been since uh, since you've been elected? Because our focus is on uh, transformation and leadership, and transformation over the past year has been quite crazy. <laughs> it has been, Ben, and as you know, and in, in, in the you know the audience knows that you and I used to work together and it was a great experience for me and uh, I can tell you that coming in here the thing that you know the reason I ran for this position was because I believe this government needs some significant change and I thought our leadership really had to get uh, their heads wrapped around what really could be the direction forward for Canada now you know coming in here and expecting to make those kinds of changes uh, there's some channels where I've made those changes I've managed to really uh, convince people in my party about where we think the country should would have a different direction that would benefit Canadians more. But I haven't had too many successful conversations with people in other parties. So you think about that, uh, that more or less that conflict arrangement that exists between the governing party and the opposition party. Uh, We are Her Majesty's loyal opposition. So we're the main opposition party by the way, in a minority parliament, and there's two other strong parties there, both the Bloc Québécois and the New Democratic Party. Uh, So we should be able to get something done. Unfortunately, our party, the Conservative Party of Canada, seems to be the only one that is not marching to a political drum. We're marching more to a common sense kind of drum, uh, and that's hurting us. But I think that eventually, if we keep at it and, uh, you know, get that communications we need with Canadians, They'll, you know, our ideas will resonate about how this country prospers better, Canadians do better, Canadians do better in, a, in the international sense with a different plan than is being pursued right now. Yeah, so obviously building, you know, consensus inside of government is always a, a very difficult thing. And for you and I, we've had a lot of experience on, the, you know, on, on the corporate side. And... I can't even imagine how it is to try and do that with people that are formally, you're, you're, you know, you're the opposition and uh, and coming to agreement on decisions is, is obviously very hard because, you know, inside of organizations, you're usually driving towards the same vision. And so how how have you worked to be able to work with others to build that consensus from other parties? That's a very good question. And, uh, you know, you start in your own party to think about the people on my team. So one of the advantages I have is that I've got 121 people that are on my side on the issues that matter to me. I've just got to make sure they understand the issues and, you know, they subscribe to what I'm saying is the solution to those issues. And as you know, in in Calgary, that's a lot of oil and gas issues. That's a lot of economy issues. Uh, And I can uh, have those meetings one on one or one on a group or in a caucus, perhaps a provincial caucus, where those ideas resonate and people ask the questions openly 
and are open to the responses. Now, we all come from different backgrounds in the House of Commons. Uh, so bringing an oil and gas perspective, bringing a finance perspective to the equation has been helpful, I think. And a lot of people appreciate the fact that I've got the skill set I have because it does add some value in the decision making we have to go through. But I arrived, first of all, with those 121 people, 120 and me, 121 of us, on one side of an issue, we can speak with one voice. And that's a benefit. But I also think that we have to obviously become government in order to implement good policies for this country. In moving in the direction with the, with the parliament we have right now, which is a minority parliament, I've done my utmost to reach across the aisle uh, with the Liberal Party, with the NDP, and with the Bloc. So I've got a little bit of French capability, and I can uh, work with my friends in the Bloc as well as the other parties, and advance the issues that matter to us in Calgary. Uh, some of those conversations are difficult. Uh, I found that, uh, especially around the energy issue, a lot of the members of parliament across Canada from outside the producing provinces don't have a don't have a an, uh, even a concept of how energy is produced by any means in Canada or what the environmental footprint is of energy of any energy production mechanism. So we go through those conversations, but they often start at ground zero, and you've got to build up to you know a forty a forty story building from ground zero those conversations take time and obviously questions come back and everybody's a victim of their own uh, sources of information and their own confirmation bias as, as I am too and I always try to look past that confirmation bias. So getting, you know, chipping down those walls about how we solve our energy issues in this country and our finance issues in this country is a, is a constant effort. And I think it's gonna take more than just to snap the fingers. On top of that, one of the things I've learned here is that a lot of the people that are elected in the other parties were elected, they believe, on a very pro-environment message. Uh, and I think that that was a part of what elected a number of MPs across Canada. Uh, but I'm not sure it was the only issue for all Canadians about how they voted. So they fall back on that position that people elected me to, you know, really shut down the oil and gas industry because that is the underlying mantra of what the prime minister seems to be uh, tilting at to a, to a lot of people. It's not really feasible. Uh, nevertheless, it is prejudicing us in Alberta and Saskatchewan, Newfoundland and Labrador, and British Columbia as well to some extent. Uh, so this is something that we're trying to make sure people understand what they're looking at here and the practicality of a better solution for Canada and the world that we hope to bring to the table. So even, I guess, when we're talking about electing others for their agenda and what they've put into it, what I've kind of noticed inside of the political environment is it's almost forced into a binary choice of you're either with us or against us, right? Either you're, you're an environmentalist or, and you hate oil and gas or you're oil and gas. And what I think has been lost is that nuanced approach of prioritization. It's not that I need to choose one or the other, but where is where does that sit inside of all the other priorities that sit that affect us as Canadians? How have you seen kind of that viewpoint shifted in say the last the last few years? Well, you're completely right about the polarization of issues. You're either with us or against us on some of these issues. So the environmentalists are an interesting group because you take a look at the gains that would have happened with the Harper Conservatives when they were in power up to 2015. And their environmental plans about how we reduce carbon emissions in Canada, the environmentalists were stuck on cap, 
we have to cap emissions in Canada. And yet the Harper plans, and as you know, I wasn't part of the Harper government, they had plans where they can incrementally were reducing it. And if, if we'd followed those plans, we'd be way ahead of where we are as far as greenhouse gas reductions go. So often that absolutism that comes in with ours, our way or the highway uh, leads to a solution that, that doesn't, that isn't better for even your own agenda, the environmentalist agenda going forward. So that's one of the things to get lost in that whole polarized debate is that the outcome eventually matters. And if you're putting forward a solution that isn't a practical outcome, then you've got to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, how do we get better at this? What is a better way of actually getting towards the solution we all seek? Uh, and yet we're not arriving at it with any, with any bit of clarity at this point in time. I think we need more clarity around that about how we actually uh, come to a solution and get away from the polarization. We aren't the United States yet. Uh, I hope we don't become the United States because I really look at what's happening down there and I don't want to see Canadians in the street fighting each other over politics. We've got a good political culture here in Canada and open dialogue needs to continue in order for us to prosper and to, to hold together as a nation. Things like Twitter, uh, I've noticed Twitter and I had to get on Twitter when I was running Prior to being, prior to then, I was always only on Twitter to hear what some of the media sources that I couldn't get otherwise were saying. Uh, now I got on Twitter during the election, and now again I just watch it, and somebody manages it for me because I look at the divisive nature of that 144 character medium, and it's it's nasty at times. It's how uh, how you can say something about somebody's position or somebody based on their position, what we call an ad hominem. Uh, and really just uh, ramp up, not the debate, but ramp up the uh, the division on the issue. Yeah, and Twitter for me, I've, I, I'm not on it. I'll occasionally browse across it on the internet, but uh, it's not, for me, it's always been a struggle to be able to get across ideas in, you know, the short amount of characters and context, I believe, is very important. So, you know, I... I'll have to say it's brave of you to be on there and have other people manage it for you as well. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll shift a little bit away from the politics and maybe asking about yourself. How difficult was it for you to make that jump from private sector into public government? And what's been the most, I guess, difficult change for you in that shift of lifestyle? It's an interesting question. And let me, let me explain why. Because I had been involved a little bit in the political process when I was younger. I actually served as a policy advisor in my 20s here in Ottawa, and uh, I did six years working for two cabinet ministers. So I had had some exposure to it, some significant exposure at even the high level as a, as a policy advisor. And I left Ottawa after six years here, uh, and I was happy to leave because there's this entrenched way of thinking at the time that that uh, that I didn't agree to. And I went back and got my, my Master's of Business Administration at uh, Western Ontario Ivy School of Business. From there, my financial career started. But it was that get away from this because I don't like the way this system works. So it was walking away from you know a six-year investment in the career at that point in time. So you think about that good and bad. Like I had some exposure to what politics was like, and I and on the bad side, I actually didn't like the way government worked. So mm -hmm. it's this whole getting back into it. It's like, okay, this is what I'm agreeing to. And I've got that exposure. And I remember running it by my wife. We were on holidays in Peru when I broke it to her about what I was thinking of doing. And I said, 
here's what I see is going wrong in our country. And yet I'm sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, somebody else should fix it. When I'm actually somebody with a skill set that's been there before, saw the things I think I can change. And now at this stage of my career, perhaps I can go back and really affect some change with, with some know-how about how to do that. And some of that, Ben, of course, is thanks to the files you and I worked on and, and you know, the skill sets we developed together. Uh, but I really wanted to come here and do that. When I pitched my wife on it, she jumped on board so quickly, it was unreal. I don't think she, know what she knew what she was getting into at the time, about how much of our life and our time it would suck away. But, uh, you know, it has, it has been uh, an eye-opening experience for her, having never been involved in politics before. Uh, and, you know, you do give up a lot of your personal life. I'm glad our kids are in their 20s. I call them the kids still, but you know, all our boys are 22 to 28 years old because I'm not sure I could have done this job as well if I was still raising them. And that's, you know, I've been immersed in this over the last 11 months, but even before there in, in getting elected and in seeking the nomination. It's a long process. You have to be really committed to it. And you've got to be able to talk about what you want to do to create change. And uh, people have to obviously subscribe to you personally as a politician and how you're gonna do better than uh, than somebody else that they might consider in, in the position that you're seeking. So, you know, it, it is a, it, it has been an evolutionary process and there are those two ends to it. Yes, I have some experience and, you know, I thought it was a lousy system that needed fixing and that's why I left. And then uh, now I'm saying, well, you have the skill set here and you should go back and fix it. If you, when you get a good sounding board like my wife uh, and she buys into it, uh, it, it it helped the decision quite a bit. That's good. And then even even though you've made the decision, what what's been the hardest uh, part of the of the transition? Has it been just the time or exposure of uh, public life? What, what has it that's been kind of the, the the largest thing that's been most difficult to adapt to? Yeah, it, you, you know, it's a, it is a different set of reward structures. So you have got, to, as as you know, I was recently named the uh, the shadow minister for natural resources and Canadian northern development. Uh, and part of that I would really like to bring to the table is the, the positive uh, aspects of what we have to accomplish with our resource industry, with Canadian northern development. And... I want to be resonant throughout that. I don't want to be chirping about what the government's doing wrong. And yet the system seems to lead towards you've got to respond to everything. If some if some actor or some industry association thinks the government's getting something wrong uh, and you're not, you know, out there shouting about it, then obviously you're absent from the debate. And yet I don't think that, you know, shaking our fists at the sky is solving anything. I'd really like us to focus our efforts on getting better policy and changing the things we can change. Part of that, of course, is making sure people are aware of a better path forward. And you know, I think part of it is gonna be picking our spots as far as what we confront on. Just like anything else, you know, you've gotta let some things go and focus on the big issues that you can really affect change upon. Uh, you can't, you're not gonna change everything and eventually you're gonna wear out your welcome if you just keep screaming about every issue that jumps on the horizon. Now. I'll also say that this is a very unusual time to be governing and to be in opposition as well. There is uh, a pandemic and how 
many years ago did we last experience a real pandemic? You know, a century ago. So there's no rule book saying here's what a politician does in a pandemic. You've really got to uh, address it as it goes along here. And we are, and the government is as well. Uh, and our best approach at this point in time is to work with the programs that are coming forward here. We make suggestions all the time. Most of the time they get ignored until the, the, you know, the government institutes their program and realizes how much they've messed up and then they come back, okay, we'll make those adjustments that you talked about. And well, that was two months ago. You know, it's a little water under the bridge now. You could have done a lot of fixing between now and then. Uh, but that's, that's our role at this point in time. We wanna make sure that Canadians are getting the support they need while the economy has been uh, very badly hurt. But above all else, Ben, we've got to make sure that we mitigate the health damage to Canadians that's, ca that's been caused by this pandemic. Um, and so far, I have to say, especially in the Western part of this country, the four Western provinces, we've actually handled this very well. Uh, and I think I have to give credit to all our provincial health authorities, both all the governments in Western Canada, uh, and all the you know the health uh, professionals as well, because you look at the way it is in uh, Quebec, in Montreal, south of the border, uh, we 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 aren't experiencing nearly the same devastation from a health perspective as other other uh, other people are. I do expect we will experience more effects this winter, uh, and we do need to be ahead of that. And that's our job right now is to try and push the government to be planning before there is actually a crisis and I you know they haven't been of that mindset yet that look at what's happening next and be prepared for it and I, I think that that's a result of you know the politicians largely being people that haven't been in management positions before and even when I look at say a private sector leader versus the public sector leader the private sector you're always trying to go and plan ahead and be able to see how you'd be able to go and execute it and Unfortunately, sometimes within the public side, there's still a lot of what you call the shaking of the fist of yeah. what's wrong rather than trying to go and actually build a path forward. Right? Exactly right. Yeah. And so when I look at the leadership side, one of the questions I did have for you was around Aaron O'Toole. Like I did notice that you did endorse him quite early. And so for you, what were your leadership characteristics that drove you to endorse him? I arrived in Ottawa as a new member of parliament. So I didn't have, as we say, a dog in this race. I know we had not performed effectively as a party in the last election across Canada. I think a large part of what elected 33 conservative members of parliament in Alberta out of 34 was a complete distaste for this current government. Uh, it wasn't Craig McLean's the, the greatest guy, you know, that I've ever seen run for office. So we should all just run for him. I think, you know, I defeated my opponent because my opponent was saddled with the luggage of uh, Justin Trudeau as the prime minister and how badly he performed uh, and how, you know, in my opinion, how much his decisions had prejudiced our province and, and other producing provinces. So there was some sourness there towards the leadership. I think there still is sourness towards the leadership of the country here. So this is where you come in and say, okay, you know, how do you change the uh, the structure of what people couldn't vote for in the last election when they really should have thrown these people out across the country? Uh, and there's so many reasons I could give you for that, Ben. But somehow we're not resonating as a party across the country, or we weren't prior to uh, you know the, this current leadership. So analyze that very quickly because 
you know me, I'm an impatient person, and find out what is the path forward here. And I quickly arrived at what, do I look, what am I looking for in a leader? Uh, and I'm looking for you know, the people on the ground here. So if you weren't running in this past election when this country really needed a change, then why are you running for leader of this party at this point in time? Because if you didn't identify that, you know, get out there and put yourself forward and make sure people understand that this country needs a, a big change from the people that are running it at this at that point in time, then you're probably not in this game. So I was looking for somebody in caucus and I broke it down and I looked at the performance of the my colleagues in caucus and I broke it down to two individuals who stood out head and shoulders above the rest. One of them was Aaron. And the other person was, by the way, Gerard Deltel, who's a Quebec city MP, and he decided not to run. So at that point in time, it was quite, quite clear to me, you know, that Aaron had the qualities I was looking for. I didn't know him before. I got to know him very quickly. He's a person that knows how to work with other parties. So he's a collaborator. He's somebody that looks at the possible and can kind of come to a conclusion about what direction we actually need to go. Uh, and, you know, I, I think... Albeit maybe it's not a good political skill, but uh, from my previous background, I decided to be decisive about it and say, here's my options on the table, and this is what I'm looking for, and this candidate fits all those qualities best, and therefore I decided. Part of the role of the politician is to help make decisions, because um, that's why yeah. you're there, right? <laughs> not to get too political on it, but you know, I look at the role of ethics inside of leadership, whether it be for corporate areas or for government. And we've seen multiple things uh, come up from the Liberal government around ethics. We, you know, we have the Aga Khan, we have SNC-Lavalin, we have the WE Charity scandal. What, what is the political bias or the thought around being able to, let's say, overlook ethical shortcomings in you know, what leadership is. Yeah, I'm a little dismayed by it, actually, because I know we expect a lot. I mean, uh, you think about if you had a business leader and he had these shortcomings that we've seen in the current leadership of the country, you would say, listen, you're not fit to lead. Uh, it's time for you to move on. Uh, a board would come to that decision. And yet Canadians to this point in time haven't come to that decision. So there's my dismay, Ben. I, so somehow... Canadians don't seem to be attaching any value anymore to ethics. Uh, and I don't know if it's because it's just, they just expect politicians to be crooked at the end of the day, but the oversights of the current leadership of this country are uh, deep. Uh, the one that I, uh, I think really re resonates with me is the SNC-Lavalin affair, or in this case, in the last little while, the We Charity fiasco. I mean, this is, this is a government that wants its finger on the scale about putting taxpayers' money in its friends' pockets. So it's, it's not a good thing. And yet somehow that's not getting across to people that aren't voting conservative right now. People are still supporting the prime minister. I don't know why. The honesty doesn't seem to matter to Canadians. Or is it potentially that they don't see the alternatives? Uh, because I do think uh, we do have to get honesty and ethics back into people's perception of politics and let them know that the you know the bad apples are the ones we expose and the ones we throw out but it shouldn't taint the rest of us in this process no thank you very much for that do you feel like there needs to be 
larger repercussions for ethical violations? Is that a, a change in policy that should be implemented? Well, yes and no. And I'm going through this right now, by the way. And today, one of the things I have to do is file my six-month disclosure statements to uh, the the ethics and the ethics officer. And, and having had a career in business and a portfolio and some private interests and some mortgages and some properties, for me, it's a bigger effort. But they make me disclose everything all the time, and I can see myself actually slipping. Uh, and and you know, I can see how maybe Bill Morneau actually forgot that he had a he had a villa in France. Uh, you know, it's oh my gosh. I mean, the amount of paper I have to provide these people is completely onerous, and it distracts from the job that people are actually paying me to do. So there's an oversight mechanism here at the House of Commons that's there for a good reason, and yet they don't do it nearly as efficiently as was done in my previous jobs. So for instance, in the financial sector, the disclosure mechanisms you have for your conflicts of interest that make sure you're not insider trading are very clear and they're very easy to go through. Uh, you do it once, they sign up, you know, you effectively disclose your financial holdings and they go automatically to your compliance officer every month. Uh, and here it just does not seem to flow. You've got to create a whole bunch of paper every six months that is over the top. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that, Greg. You know, for me, I wish I had a French villa I could accidentally forget about reporting. Unfortunately, I don't. Uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for your time, Greg. And it's been a great pleasure having you on, just talking about decision-making and leadership inside of the Ben, it's a great pleasure being here. I'm so glad we took the time for this. Closing thoughts here. But there's a lot of work that goes into being elected and being a politician. That being said, I don't think the political life is for me, as I think it drives me nuts trying to make decisions to build out policies that quote-unquote work. And what works can be very subjective depending on your perspective. Also, having the ends justify the means and the blind eye towards ethical scandals is somewhat concerning to me, and I'm not even sure what to make of it. What's your take? Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Thanks again for listening to the Organized Chaos Cafe. If you have thoughts, questions, or ideas, please email me at occ at climbconsulting.ca. That's OCC at C-L-Y-M-B consulting dot C-A. Thanks.